This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode has been carefully curated from the Top of Mind archive, and there's a lot to choose from. We've been going in-depth with guests on the air every weekday since 2015, searching for new perspectives and ideas. I hope what you hear today makes you think about your world a little differently and sparks satisfying new conversations with the people in your life. Let's dive in. In order to meet the emissions goals in the Paris Climate Agreement, America is going to need a lot of batteries for electric vehicles, of course, and also for storing solar and wind power so we can keep the lights on when it's dark and still outside. But batteries pose their own environmental challenges, unintended consequences. Providence College political science professor Theo Riofrancos studies the energy sector. Professor Riofrancos, welcome. Thanks for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. What is your underlying concern about the transition that the world is in towards, you know, more electric cars and, and renewable energy? My underlying concern, I think you actually captured well in your introduction just there, which is that as we transition to a low carbon world, um, I'm concerned about the environmental impact of necessary green technologies. So I don't want to downplay at all the fact that we absolutely need to transition to a world in which we have many more solar panels and wind turbines and in which we also electrify transit. The problem is, is that each of those technologies is made of stuff that's pulled from the earth. And I think you know, sometimes it's easy to forget that because we even refer to these technologies as green or as clean, um, which can kind of efface their environmental impact. And there are a lot of organizations, environmental organizations, and even like the World Bank is showing in their reports how much mining would need to occur in order to produce the scale of green technologies that we need. I focus on electric vehicles and on batteries used for renewable grids, as you mentioned, but you can, and scholars have done similar research for wind turbines, solar panels, and a whole host of other technologies. Is it a question, though, of short-term pain for long-term gain? Uh, you know, I mean, if the choice is um, cause some environmental damage in order to get everybody driving an electric vehicle, is is that a better choice for the environment than... Um, all of us continue to drive CO2 emitting, uh, you know, diesel and gasoline vehicles? There are certainly tensions and trade-offs. Um, and, you know, so on the one hand, I, I think it's safe to say that the climate crisis and the amount of carbon in the atmosphere is like the number one, you know, environmental crisis facing the planet right now. But there are lots of other environmental crises that are, you know, pretty devastating on their own. And in many cases are, are you know, interrelated with the climate crisis. So we have, you know, ocean acidification, we have this potentially sixth mass extinction of species, right? So there's a lot of environmental harm to go around. And I don't think it's so simple to put it in terms of short and, and long-term. I think that especially gets complex when you look at the regions of the world where a lot of this mining happens. Um, we do have uh, quite a bit of mining in the U.S. and both the Trump, outgoing Trump and incoming you know, Biden administrations are want to actually ramp up domestic mining, including of lithium. But a lot of raw material extraction in the world comes from the global south, comes from countries that are lower income, that in most all cases were formerly colonized. And so I think when we travel to the places that mining occurs, it's less about you know short-term pain for longer-term gain and more about centuries of devastation and sort of toxic legacies of of mining um, that that they are worried that communities in those places are worried will just continue sort of under the banner of of green technology and and of and of confronting climate change. Tell us about one of these places where lithium is mined in abundance. Yeah, um, so a place that I've done some field work uh, is Chile, which is the place um, second most in the world where lithium comes from. Number one is is Australia, and then after that is Chile. And in Chile, lithium is extracted from these beautiful salt flats that are in the northern part of the country in the Atacama Desert. Um, and it's just a, a, a breathtaking environment. I, I encourage your listeners to do a Google image search of the area. 
Um, and the concerning thing about lithium extraction there is it's a desert, um, as I mentioned, and it's also the second driest place on earth after Antarctica. So it's a very water scarce and water vulnerable environment. And there are many species that live there. Um, I think sometimes people think of deserts as not having species or organic life, but that's, that's not true. And so there are beautiful Andean flamingos. There are also human communities. There are 18 indigenous communities that that live around the particular salt flat uh, where lithium is extracted. And, and how does lithium, the lithium get out of the salt? Like, do they have to dig into yeah, the salt flat yeah. to get it out? It's, it's actually a strange extraction process that some uh, scientists actually refer to as water mining. Um, because what you're doing is taking lithium-rich brine, which is underneath um, uh, the surface of the salt flats, and sucking it out with, like, kind of think of a giant straw. It's, like, pump, you know, pumped out, basically. And it's arrayed on these enormous evaporation ponds. And a lot of the sort of work of concentrating the mineral, the valuable mineral, the lithium, is done by sun, by solar radiation, just by it evaporating into the air. So what you're doing is taking brine out from underneath the salt crust and then evaporating as much of the liquid, the water as possible, uh, and then it's further refined. But this all happens in a desert where the brine is actually part of a hydrological system that includes fresh water, and you are really affecting and impacting that whole water system. And we've seen evidence of lower water tables and less access to water um, for animals and the indigenous communities and other communities that live in the area. But the brine isn't drinkable, right? So it's not like it's it's the drinking water of the people and the animals in the community. It is not it is not drinkable. You're right. It's quite salty. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I would say two things about that. One is that organisms do live in the brine and some of those organisms are what the flamingos eat. Right. So the flamingos eat brine shrimp, which live in that brine. So, you know, so part of it is thinking about interconnected ecosystems. Um, the other thing, though, that that's more direct to your question about about drinking water is that the brine system and the freshwater system are are right next to one another. They, they interface. I'll put it that way. Mm. And when you suck brine out, there's a decent amount of scientific research, though we need more research. But I, there's a lot of scientific research and anecdotal you know, human observation that shows that when the brine is lowered, it's when it's sucked out. Uh, the, the freshwater table is drawn down by gra basically by gravity. I won't get into it in mm -hmm. a too complicated of a way, um, but but so you have less access to that freshwater. Makes it harder to get drawn down. It's drawn down exactly. in a way that makes it harder to get to for exactly. for the people and, who and are, who have the wells for their agriculture or whatever. Exactly. And let me just add one quick thing there, which is that this is a region simultaneously impacted by huge copper mining, and copper uses a lot of the freshwater directly for processing. Chile is the number one copper producer in the world. And what else needs a lot of copper? Electric vehicles, right? So this is an area where you have multiple impacts of multiple extractive industries putting a lot of pressure on a vulnerable ecosystem that's actually a wetland in the desert. It's a beautiful and, and unusual ecosystem. What do the indigenous communities that live in that region want, though? Do they want the mines to go away? I imagine that some of that is jobs and economic development for them. It's, you know, you're, you're right on the money. It is, it is always mixed in, in communities that, and I've studied lots of um, extractive sectors and, 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 and how communities respond to them. And there are often divisions within communities, sometimes within the, you know, the same family, like mm -hmm. someone might work for the mine and someone else might be an environmental activist, or sometimes the same person might be, you know, internally conflicted over it. What I can say, you know, simply and, and quickly is that there's been increasing resistance to lithium mining among the indigenous communities over time. Some of these companies at various points and including recently have had agreements with communities um, and there, but, but over time there's been more concern about the environmental impact because as I said, you have lithium, you have copper, and then let's circle back to climate change, uh, it also increasing the water scarcity through, through um, increased desertification. So, I think communities are basically caught in, in this sort of, you know, matrix of, of a lot of socio-environmental impacts and are starting to take a firmer stand um, on making sure that that water is protected and that their livelihoods are protected. Can we make batteries without lithium? Yes, we can. There are a lot of different battery technologies out there, but most, but all of the ones that aren't lithium ion batteries are kind of just have been developed in a lab and haven't really been scaled yet. Mm. What oftentimes happens with technological development is that the first, you know, the technology that kind of wins at the beginning kind of gets, you know, entrenched over time. So it can be hard to dislodge 
an incumbent technology. And lithium-ion batteries date to like Sony camcorders, right? Like they've been used in, in camcorders and in video, you know, video cameras and um, cell phones and laptops and now in electric vehicles. So they have a lot of manufacturing capacity behind them in a way that that alternative batteries don't have. But, you know, we'll see in the future if, if there are other contenders. I would just stress though that everything comes from somewhere, right? And so even when we talk about different cathode chemistries, different battery technologies, it's all made with stuff that, that you know, ultimately comes from the earth and also uses energy and human labor to produce. So, you know, the bigger question is what type of renewable economy do we want to build? And how can we build a renewable economy that is less resource intensive, not zero resources? I don't think that that's possible, but we can certainly reduce how much mining and mine materials come out of the earth and then the environmental impacts of, of that mining. What, what does that look like? I guess it could look like recycling lithium. Is that possible? Yes, absolutely. So you're you're on the right track. So some of it is about how we preserve, recover, reuse, repair, right? So instead of just throwing things out when they don't when they don't work anymore or when they're past their, you know, lifespan, you know, to think about how we can recover those materials. And that's something that uh, that there's already quite a bit of research on and, and it's totally due and it's happening not that much in the US, but hopefully under a Biden administration will happen more. So that's, you know, one piece is, is recycling and recovery. Another piece, though, that's a little more big picture is just thinking about our transit system, right? You mentioned earlier in the interview, like, well, we're all going to have to have EVs if we want to confront the climate crisis. And there is a truth to that. But there's also a way in which I think, you know, especially Americans, but also lots of people in the world are just, you know, have become used to driving cars or wanting to drive cars, or that's become like an aspiration, like we all should own a car. You know, I think that a better way to think about the transit system is to think about things like public and mass transit. So let's say a lithium bus, right? A, 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 an electric bus that functions with a lithium battery. In a, in a dense, you know, metropolitan area, a bus might cycle a thousand passengers in an hour, whereas a car probably sits in the garage all day, right? Between commuting or between trips. And I would say that a much more rational use of the earth's, you know, limited resources are some is, a, is something that more people use, right? So first I would emphasize mass and public transit. And then I would think about, you know, what about walkability? What about cycling? What about other ways to move around? Especially, you know, this makes more sense in urban areas. And I think in rural areas, you know, we could speak about that separately, but as much as we can reduce the total amount of car ownership and especially individually owned cars, I think we're getting towards a transit system that's not just, um, lower carbon and easier to decarbonize. The fewer vehicles on the road, the easier it is to decarbonize, but it also is less resource intensive in terms of mining. How do you get people, though, to choose to not have a car? Well, you know, it's hard. It's, it's, it's a great question. And it so depends on where you're from in the country, right, let alone in the world, you know, how one responds to that question. I'm from New York City, right. And so I grew up, I don't live there anymore. But I grew up um, um, riding mass transit and actually thinking it was quite unusual to own a car. But that's because New York City has a very developed mass transit system. So mm -hmm. I think that, you know, human beings are very malleable. A lot of it is like what you're used to, but also what opportunities are, are there for you. And I think we see that when governments invest more in public transit and when and make sure it's reliable and clean and frequent and has good coverage, people will actually use it because it's not fun to sit in traffic, right? I mean, and, and or to have to look for parking or to have to pay maintenance on your car. And I think we see that places in the world that actually fund good mass transit systems, people are very willing to use those. And places that don't have them basically force people to, to choose cars. And it feels like a free choice, but really there is no other option if you live in most suburban and rural areas in the U.S. Do you see any way around the demand for lithium, though, for batteries on the electric grid? I mean, a future where... A lot of people have solar panels powering their homes. They're going to need some way to store that solar energy from the daytime so that they can watch TV at night. Um, you know, and, and on, on the grid level, like power plants are going to have to have some way to store electricity for off peak for, you know, for for times for other times when the energy is not mm -hmm. being created. Is there is lithium as big a concern for you in that sector? 
Yeah, and and to be clear, I I and I and answer directly the, the great question about grids. Um, uh, I I don't think we can probably have transit electrification with zero lithium, right? I mean, I know I know that some lithium will have to come out of the ground. I think the question is how much, how rapidly, and under what environmental and social circumstances and and regulations it is. So just to sort of clarify that, and then you know, on the renewable grid thing, you're absolutely right. That the thing about solar and wind energy is that they're intermittent, and you need storage systems. Lithium batteries are one good form of storage. They can store store energy on them on a scale of hours. Um, there are other kind of pumped hydro and other forms of storage that can store for, for longer than a matter of hours, right? And then we have to think about, you know, is there even longer term storage um, possibility? So lithium ion batteries aren't the only way to store energy on grids, but they are one good way. And I will say back to your question about recycling, that a cool thing about lithium batteries is that once they are no longer useful for cars or buses or trucks, because they're, they've sort of lost some of their ability to charge and discharge really quickly, um, they are great on grids. So you can actually give batteries, you know, a so-called second life hmm. um, from a Tesla, let's say, to a, to a renewable energy grid and keep using it because on a grid, it doesn't need to have that fast, char- you know, acceleration, basically fast charge and discharge. Hmm. Thea Riofrancos is a professor of political science at Providence College. She's author of Resource Radicals, From Petro-Nationalism to Post-Extractivism in Ecuador. She's got a new book she's working on about batteries. Thank you very much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for the great questions. A pleasure. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. More great conversations from the Top of Mind archive are coming up. This is Top of Mind. The killer waited by his home, hidden by the night. Has ever stepped out from his car into the rifle sight. This is a song called The Ballad of Medgar Evers. It struck the heart of every man whenever Spellin died. Too many martyrs and too many dead. Too many lies, too many empty words were said. Too many times. It's about the civil rights leader Medgar Evers, who was murdered in his driveway by a member of the KKK in 1963. That home where Evers was assassinated is one of the recommended stops on the U.S. Civil Rights Trail, detailed in a new guidebook written by Deborah Douglas. And the song, The Ballad of Medgar Evers, is on the recommended playlist to accompany your travels through key sites of the civil rights movement. Deborah Douglas is a visiting professor of journalism at DePaul University. And she's with us now. Professor, welcome. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. What's it like to visit the Edgar's, the, the Evers home in Jackson, Mississippi? Oh, there's a rush of emotions. Um, of course, sadness and knowing what happened there. When you first walk into the house, you go through the actual driveway where he was gunned down. But you also see signs of family life. You know, you see the the children's uh, mattresses low on the floor because uh, he didn't want bullets to whiz through the the windows at night and and hurt the children. You see uh, worn toys. So you you got got the sense of joy and intimacy of family life, but also just the feeling of sadness that he was cut down the way he was for the reasons he was cut down. He was an NAACP um, uh, worker, right? Leader, organizer in, in Mississippi. Yes, uh, he was a field director, and he went around the state and he collected stories of racism and discrimination and got people to go on the record and advocated on their behalf and organized people uh, to raise their voices and and fight for freedom. And in what way was his assassination um, important, you know, notable to the movement such that preserving his home is an important part of this trail? For so many reasons. First of all, Megger Evers was uh, a veteran. And like so many of uh, the people uh, who were a part of the movement, a lot of these soldiers came back home. They fought for American freedom and they fu- fully expected to come home and take part in the, the democratic experiment. But they, when they came back, they were treated the way that black people had always been treated. And so people don't talk a lot about the direct connection of what those soldiers experienced to the civil rights movement, but I think a lot of the 
the tension and anger and agitation of being locked out of society is part of uh, the energy that fueled the movement. Is visiting historical sites related to the civil rights movement something that you've always done? I can't say that I've always done it because when you look at sort of like travel logs or catalogs or you look at what cities and states are saying about, you know, places that you should uh, visit, they don't necessarily put black neighborhoods, black stories or communities in those narratives. So this is why this book is different because it elevates um, the the lived experience of African-Americans to be on par with that kind of travel. Uh, I think that I've been reflecting a little bit more deeply on the history that is just right around me at all times. I live in Chicago and uh, the home that Emmett Till lived in is on track to be uh, recognized as a historical monument for the city of Chicago. And uh, I think that I could do a better job of cherishing the history that surrounds me and I encourage other people to do so too. Uh, You mentioned Emmett Till. There is a a site in the book, your guidebook, that you recommend people visit um, and observe a moment of silence. But the site itself is not that much to look at. It's a falling down old store. It's the remains of a grocery store in the Mississippi Delta. Tell us about tell uh, us about that location. Do you remember the first time you visited it? Was it difficult to find? Well, I had some help Uh, when I drove into the Delta uh, from Jackson, which is to the south. I um, I actually made calls ahead so people would know that I was coming. And I met with a state senator, David Jordan, um, at the Greenwood City Hall and talked to him about the town, the area, directions of places to go. And um, Senator Jordan actually attended the trial of Medgar Evers's murder. So I wanted to document his story in that way. And so I drove up to Money Road and I plotted it on a map the night before on my friend's kitchen table in Jackson. And um, there is not much to look at. And the day that I was there, it was blocked off by an orange gate and it was marked by a sign. And then there's another store that is uh, that's been preserved uh, better in that period that kind of gives you a sense of of the architecture of the time. If you read the signs, you get a sense of, you know, the communication style at the time. But really, you can kind of feel the spectral energy of the time. So this is really uh, something that you should stop and contemplate and think about your positionality. Uh, What if you were a kid like Emmett and his cousins? What must have been going through Carolyn Bryant's mind when she formulated that lie in her mind or the men, the white men in the store? So So, this is the if you would just if you would just tell us the story quickly, what is it about Bryant's grocery and meat market that in in Greenwood, Mississippi, that is significant to the movement? Well, Emmett, who was 14 at the time, was on summer vacation down from Chicago and he went into the store with his cousins uh, that day. It, the store is owned by Carolyn Bryant, and I think her husband's name is Jim, I forget his name. Anyway, um, she reported to her husband that Emmett whistled at her, which was a no-no back in that time. And, um, you know, as is now, Black children were deemed to not be children, but, you know, fashioned as adults. And they came, uh, her husband and, and some other men came and, and pulled Emmett out of his house uh, where he was living with family members that summer. Mm-hmm. And they went and they drove and found, um, they abused him and they they found a cotton gin fan with barbed wire and wrapped it around him and threw him in the river. Mm-hmm. And you know that's how his body was found. And so one of the sites in the book is the actual cotton gin where they got the device to weigh his body down. And that, museum, it's a small museum, is actually run by one of the men whose fathers uh, helped move the body, Um, a black man uh, who didn't really have the power and agency to say no, that he wouldn't help with a terrible job like that. So it's really like rich and layered and And spooky and terrible. <laughs> yeah, and Emmett Till was murdered in 1955. You uh, you mentioned in the book that, that that his murder was really, in some ways, considered a catalyst of the modern civil rights movement. Um, yes, it was a catalyst for the modern day civil rights movement. Sorry to cut you off. <laughs> please, no, good. I, I appreciate you um, affirming that for me. Um, 
the the U.S. civil rights trail that you lay out, you, if, if, if one wanted to, <laughs> you could spend a good long time tra- tracing the entire trail um, in by car and visiting all of the sites. Um, that would probably take, what, like weeks, months <laughs> to do that, depending on how it fast? Would, it would take a month. I can't... I, I counted it up. It would mm. take a month. Okay. And I'm not suggesting that people take a month off uh, because most of us don't have that. But this trail is really amenable to day trips mm. and weekend trips. And uh, you can go spend, you know, a couple days in a city. Or if you wanted to take a couple days over, like may- maybe have a long weekend, you can say go from Memphis to Nashville or Memphis to the Delta or Birmingham to Montgomery. Mm. There's lots of different ways to slice and dice it. And I give very specific instructions in the book on how to do that. You, uh, you've mentioned some of the locations that um, we know from major events in the civil rights movement, Birmingham, Montgomery, Selma. Um, the trail, though, starts in Charleston, South Carolina. Why did you choose that as the starting place? Okay, so the official civil rights trail, I must say, and it was this was designated by Southern Travel Directors in 2018, so this is why it's so new. It actually starts as far east as Wilmington, Delaware, and it can go as far west as Kansas, as far south as deep into Florida and Louisiana, but I had to make some choices. Hmm. So I go to Charleston because I needed a foundational chapter. How did black people get into this country? Why are African-Americans here in the first place? Charleston was one of the largest uh, ports for in, enslaved Africans. So it was foundational in that way. And there are other things that happened in Charleston too, you know, uh, labor labor movement. Uh, and of course now what happened at Mother Emanuel. So, mm. but foundationally Charleston is important for those reasons. Yeah. And the trail ends in Washington, D.C. The White House is even a stop on it. Why? Well, African-Americans built the White House. Mm. (laughs) Enslaved Africans helped build the White House and free Black people helped build the White House. So that's one reason why it literally is our house and is our house in the sense of for the citizens of the United States, it's our house. And Washington is important is because everything starts and ends there in terms of defining who we are, how we are and why we are. Uh, Think about the Supreme Court cases. Think about the laws that were made as a result of the, of the movement, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, you know, Housing Act. So much came out of that movement that traces its, its way back to Washington, D.C. And then D.C. in and of itself, you know, was a place for the Black freedom struggle, too. So I don't want to erase the fact that um, D.C., Black D.C. residents were agitating for their own freedoms as mm-hmm. citizens of that town. Uh, like all good guidebooks, your guidebook, the U.S. the U.S. Civil Rights Trail includes um, recommendations for where to eat and where to sleep, and lots of great historical information and photos and recommended day trips and walking tours and all kinds of things. Right? It's a literal guidebook, which is really cool. I loved the addition, though, of uh, recommended play- playlist for the various stops along the way, and I want to listen to one of them. So this is. This is a song called We've Got a Job. It was written by Black composer Carlton Reese. And I have a clip here of it being performed by the Carlton Reese Memorial Unity Choir at a live event uh, marking the 50th anniversary of the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Let's listen to just a bit. Deborah Douglas, if we were on this road trip together, where would you decide to cue that song for us? Oh, when you get to Birmingham, because uh, the Carlton Reese Choir was born as a choir of the Alabama movement, uh, Christian Movement for Human Rights, which was founded by uh, Reverend Fred Lee Shuttlesworth. And so uh, movement leaders uh, like Reverend Shuttlesworth deem music as being sort of like a way to generate energy and momentum. And so, you know, while you're working to, to, to live right and get to heaven, um, you just sort of like took some of that message and, you know, and floated into the quest to, to get right and live right on earth. 
Hmm. And the the Carlton Reese Choir actually exists today. <laughs> really? Okay. And, yes. and and the 16th Street Baptist Church, where the bombing took place that killed four girls, um, uh, is that church visitable? Can is it like? Can you actually? See, it is. Is it so still there? Totally visible. Huh. Yes. So it's actually in the Civil Rights District in downtown Birmingham. You can uh, you can uh, call the church and or go online and make arrangements to visit the church, um, visit the sanctuary, and then you'll visit the basement also. Across from that is uh, the. The Civil Rights Institute is a museum and it fully contextualized the lived experience of Black Alabamans at the time and what they were fighting for. And it gives you a little sense of the the economy of Birmingham. I just learned so much there. Hmm. And then across the street is the Kelly Ingram Park, which was a staging area for a lot of the protests. And inside that park, you have all kinds of monuments, a monument to the four little girls. Um, You see the water cannons, a replica water cannon that was used uh, to spray children, child activists at that time, and some other things too. How has there been any challenge um, in in making sure that these sites are preserved and maintained and that these stories like who who's making sure that that, you know, who's making these museums and maintaining these um, these sites? A lot of the museums I went to were Smithsonian affiliated. Hmm. And uh, like in the case of the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, I know that they do get corporate sponsorship. Um, I did notice a greater appreciation for the story. Like every state I went to, there was a museum to go to, for example, a very well-appointed museum. Does that surprise you? Um, yes, I think so. Hmm. I mean, I knew about a couple of them, but then, you know, the idea that I could go any place and then walk into this narrative and in this context was was beautiful. And there's more on tap. There's going to be a new uh, African-American museum in Charleston that focuses on uh, the uh, the, the slave trade and uh, genealogy. Uh, the Mormon church actually um, donated a lot of money to bolster the, the genealogical uh, research apparatus of that museum that will open in 2022. Hmm. And um, yeah, it's, um, oh, and the Department of Interior maintains a lot of sites. So a lot of okay. the sites that the federal government actually runs are in this book too. So we have that investment. How can people make sure that they're seeing these sites in modern context, that that it's not just visiting a place where interesting things happened 50 years ago? I mean, I don't want to sound like overly commercial, but <laughs> the opportunity that I took in my book is to put the history in a modern context. I do make a point, even though it's a guidebook and it says, go here, eat this and eat that, it's also, it has an analysis to it at the same time. And it connects it to modern day movements. I go all the way up into, you know, the uprisings of 2020. So by the time you put it down, if you can't figure out where you stand on the issues, I don't know, maybe you need to read it again. Mm. Who was this guidebook for? Was there a specific person in your life or that you've encountered that you thought, I hope they use this? There are categories of people. So people who love history, um, people who are American history buffs, hmm. um, all African-Americans, um, all white progressives, people who consider themselves allies and advocates, um, children. <laughs> I bumped into a, a lot of, I bumped into bus loads of children um, as I was making this trip. And many times they let me let me get on the bus and take a ride with them. Hmm. Uh, so it's it's good for children. And it's a good baseline to understand the narrative arc of the mid-century civil rights movement. A lot of us know, you know, pieces of it. A lot of us know more than other people do. But this is in one book. It goes city by city. And I painstakingly put together city by city timelines so you can understand the historical context of the movement in those cities. And then you get a chance to see how the puzzles fit together and you understand better what people were fighting for. Is there one site that um, that's maybe well known because it's a location where terrible things happened or a famous protest happened, but that when people visit it, they'll be surprised, like, like that, that maybe it'll really kind of change the way they see things. Ooh, that is interesting. That's a big question. Hmm. It's so many places like that. I mean, I, I guess when you go, 
the idea that four little girls could be bonded 16th Street Baptist Church in church on a day when the children were were you know having a special program you know you could put yourself in that space putting on your best clothes maybe you've rehearsed a speech or something or some sort of way you're just partaking in the leadership of of this worship and community space um that was heartbreaking but i also found out the same day that that those girls were murdered two black boys in town were murdered that same day for different reasons that had to do with racism hmm. so they lost six children in that community that day not just those four Deborah Douglas, it sounds like there are many places that are um, sacred on this trail for you. Is there one spot that is particularly inspiring, makes you feel hopeful? I love the uh, the African American Museum in Washington D.C. Hmm. Um, I could I go there all the time. I mean, literally, I go to D.C. for work a lot, and then I just go over there for lunch. <laughs> Um, because when you go into the, the dining area, they have these different stands that give different interpretations of African-American cuisine, like coastal cuisine or basic soul food or just all sorts of things. So it's almost like you could just go eat there and tour the Black experience in that way. Hmm. But then the rest of the museum is just a place you just want to get yourself lost in. And it's just does at the highest quality. So you feel so respected and cared for when you're in that edifice. Deborah Douglas, thank you so much. Good luck. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Deborah Douglas is the Pulliam Professor of Journalism at DePaul University, and her new book is U.S. Civil Rights Trail, A Traveler's Guide to the People, Places, and Events that Made the Movement. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. The conversations in today's episode come from the Top of Mind archive. This is Top of Mind. Today we've collected some of our favorite interviews from past years. Thanks for listening. While a lot of us thought Bitcoin was a nerdy fad that would eventually fizzle, we were clearly wrong. I guess I should say I was clearly wrong. Companies like Tesla and MasterCard say they are going to start letting people use cryptocurrency to pay for stuff. The U.S. government is talking seriously about regulating cryptocurrency. So is it time for the rest of us to get in on the Bitcoin boom? Let's ask Jill Schlesinger, business analyst for CBS News and host of Jill on Money, which is a radio show, a podcast and a nationally syndicated column. Jill, thanks for taking a minute with us today. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. What happened in the last year that made Bitcoin's price go so crazy? You want to have an actual explanation, right? You want it to make sense because it, it would make us all feel better. I can't tell you that this all makes sense, but I, I just want to go back in time for a second because, you know, I think it's a little bit of um, a mythology that's going on right now without kind of going back with a little the history. So Bitcoin was created in 2008. It was launched in 2009. And why is that interesting? Because that's right around the financial crisis. Mm. And in fact, when you think about these software developers, maybe it's one person, maybe it's a group. We don't really know. There's an anonymous uh, folks who have put this together. They really believed that financial institutions were not to be trusted and that Bitcoin would be a way to create a currency that was outside the purview of a large institution or a central bank. You know, just a real like, let me just send you money this way. It's electronic. It's great. Okay. And the technology that powers Bitcoin, it's kind of annoying because it, it says it, it's called blockchain, but it doesn't really mean anything to you. So here's what I want you to think about. You're younger than I am. I have a good feeling, but um, we used to take books out of the library mm -hmm. and in the back of those books, there was a card that would tell you who took the book out before you. Yeah, I and remember. Oh, my God. You All right. So I'm not going back too far. But anyway, that card is essentially like the blockchain that we all that when you have Bitcoin or a crypto asset, a digital asset in real time, you can see who has that currency, that asset. And so it's kind of cool because it's basically in one place. Everyone can see who took out the particular book or we just are sharing a ledger like it's having a spreadsheet that we can all see. Um, now, fast forward. 
that got, it was kind of ex- exciting and fun, but it really had a lot of ups and downs. And one of the features of Bitcoin was that, you know, there's sort of um, an, an anonymity, but that's also a problem. That's a bug because it can be used for nefarious things. So it kind of went through this adolescent period, let's call it 2009 to say 2015, 2016, where it would go up, it would go down, it would go up, it would go down. And then people like you and me would be like, oh, thank God. When it was down, you'd say, I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to think about it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It made you feel so good. <laughs> um, and so, I, I mean, the first time I ever went on television to discuss Bitcoin was um, 2013 for CBS. And um, they wanted me to talk about the fact that this thing was had gone from $13 to $1,000. Hmm. Okay. So now, it went up, down, up, down, up, down. And by the way, two years ago, Bitcoin was at 3,600. And then it went to 36,000. And that means that we saw like over the course of a couple of years went up tenfold. Now we're at, you know, 57,000. And I think that the idea here is that it's really not being used as a currency right now. It's um, it's an asset that is built on scarcity. There's only going to be 21 million Bitcoin created and it's now become like the tulip craze of this moment where we all feel like we should be buying it, even though we may not think there's a real sensible application of it. Mm, okay. Okay. So scarcity is part of why it has increased, but also like some some pretty legit organizations and investors and important people have kind of thrown their hat in with Bitcoin, right? Yeah. I mean, this current upcycle feels a little bit more real to me. First of all, I'll tell you why. Number one, my 81-year-old Jewish mother asked me about it. So that's the first tell right there. Um, so when Mrs. Schlesinger is saying, what's the Bitcoin? That's when it's like, oh, my God, it's creeping into the public discourse, right? Yeah. Um, but you're right. There have been institutional investments where you have um, – Elon Musk is using 10% of the cash reserves of Tesla to buy digital assets, um, where you have people like Mark Cuban talking about, hey, maybe this is something that you could do as an investment. Or maybe um, you look at the some of the big invest um, payments companies that are saying, hey, you know what? Maybe we need to create something on our platform where we can actually accept Bitcoin as payment. And so that has essentially created the ability for Bitcoin to be almost legitimized. And it's a little so I I can't tell you that it's worth blankety blank because you don't you don't value an asset like that. It's like it's like saying, well, what's gold worth? Well, yes, it can be used to put a chain around your neck, but essentially it's used as an asset that is seen as protection against Armageddon in the world. So that's and, what so that's what people are buying Bitcoin for right now. It, um, it it's it, it's not they're not like buying paying fifty seven thousand dollars for a Bitcoin so that they can go and use that Bitcoin to buy something on eBay like they're or wherever right. <laughs> they're that's they're right. investing in. They, they buy the Bitcoin like they would buy a like if I wanted to buy a hunk of gold and then like stick it under my bed or something and wait for the value of gold to go up so that I could go and trade it in and get more money out of it. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it's not the worst thing in the world. And you're talking to somebody who is a former gold trader. So I have a certain um, I, I take a shine to the metals. I'm just <laughs> kidding. Uh, so, I mean. When I used to talk to people about gold, and I, I grew up um, trading in the late 1980s, and when people would talk about buying gold, they really would say, oh, it's a hedge against inflation, meaning that if prices go up, bonds go down, and stocks can be all over the place, but I'll always have this thing called gold, a gold bar that has some value. But there were a lot of problems with that. I mean, you had to pay for storage, and there wasn't an efficient way to buy it. But now, even if you think about like gold or silver prices rising, they are they're really they're assets that are very difficult to quantify what they're worth, except that it's essentially like buying something that is uh, an insurance policy against market or global unrest. And, you know, what is the value on the, of that to somebody? And yes, of course, it's, it's sort of exciting because this is a, a new digital asset is something that people can't really wrap their brains around. But there's also becoming easier ways to buy and sell it and more legitimate platforms on which you can buy and sell it, which I think is 
is kind of critical if you want to be an asset as part of like someone's asset allocation. I spoke to a banker recently who was telling me how they were trying to figure out what was the way they want to actually allow their clients to invest in Bitcoin. And they said, well, you know, maybe if there was an exchange traded fund or a mutual fund, but, you know, it's not there yet. It's mm -hmm. getting close. But I think that that if, if you could say just like you'd put 2% of your 401k in a precious metals fund, if you could do that in a digital asset fund, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, but you know, you'd really have to be ready for a ride. So I, I guess the one thing I've been conf confused about, Jill Schlesinger, is how um, originally I thought that, that th these cryptocurrencies, the point was that they were a currency that I would use like instead of using dollars and cents to pay for stuff. But now it seems like really it's more of a thing to be bought and sold for a profit just because it's value change. So it's more like a stock than it is like a, a, a bill that I can use, a dollar bill that I can go use to pay to buy something. Yeah, I mean, like, you're right. I mean, when you look back at the manifesto that was written when Bitcoin was actually created, it really was touted as a currency, right? A currency. I mean, so there I were even use... like, I, me I remember a couple of years ago, I interviewed some guy who went a whole year using only Bitcoin. Like that was, he had to, he, 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 he survived on spending only Bitcoin. He had to find stores who would accept Bitcoin in exchange for milk or whatever, right? Like it was, it was, but the whole idea was to use it instead of using other kinds of money. Right. Someone said to me, I paid for a cab ride in France with a Bitcoin. I said, that was a very expensive cab ride in <laughs> retrospect. In retrospect, um, yeah. So, um, Yes, but that's not where it is right now. Now, I guess. OK, let's say let's say you were you you were Jill and you were back in 2013 and you said, ah, you know what? I'll buy a Bitcoin for 13 bucks. Right. And now it's worth fifty seven thousand. Maybe I would instead of like trying to trade it, maybe I'd say, oh, I can buy a new Tesla for fifty seven thousand dollars and use a Bitcoin. Maybe that would be a way to do it. Hmm. Maybe that's how you would do it. But it seems weird because. You know, if you list, if, if you're buying something as an asset, it's different than using it as a currency. Of course, you know, we can be investing in currencies for lots of different reasons. And, you know, we, we certainly can do that. But it, that would sort of belie the purpose of owning it as an asset. I, I mean, it's funny. Yeah. I saw that um, Mark Cuban, you know, a billionaire owner of the Dallas Mavericks, you know, he tweeted earlier this year and he said something that really stuck with me. He said something like, if you're brave enough to jump into crypto, he said, uh, pretend you've already lost your money. <laughs> and I, I don't think that's bad advice. Um, I tell people all the time, I used to be an investment advisor, right? And then people would say to me, oh, you know, what do you think about blank? And I, oh, you know what, if you want to put a little tiny percentage of money that you think you could lose, that's fine. If you want to go out and buy GameStop on a random afternoon because you read about it in on a Reddit subreddit, you know, <laughs> if you, you wanted to just dip your toe in the water, you could do it. The thing that's interesting now about Bitcoin is you can buy fractional parts of a Bitcoin. You ah. don't have to spend 57000 So right. again, as there are more products are advanced, more and more people are going to consider this. But it's really dangerous. I mean, like more dangerous is, than at the stock market, like more yeah, dangerous. No doubt. Because first of all, there's no regulation. So and and you know, that to me is danger right there. Also, I mean, look, if I buy a stock, at the very least, I can say, what does this company make? What are the cash flows? What are interest rates? I can quantify what it's worth. It's not to say that that company will not go out of business. Maybe it will, but at least there's some rational basis for buying it. This is cool technology, but it has not been proven as, as a way that there is an application to anything. Even, I mean, I guess even gold, as I said, you can, you know, have a gold necklace, but even that it's like, it's a reach, right? Because you know, I can make a lot of I wear a lot of jewelry on TV that people think is real and it's all knockoff. <laughs> the only reason that it's valuable, I mean, at least with the tulips, you could plant it and get a flower from it. But Bitcoin is like you can't even hold it in your hand. <laughs> the, the I know well, that's the other part that it is really it, it is mind blowing to anyone who's a like, let's say, who started investing, saying I owned a double E bond. I had the physical bond in my hand. I would mm -hmm. go to the bank. I would redeem it. The bank would give me money. Right. Yeah. And it was a very similar transition, by the way, when people went from owning a stock 
and having a certificate or a bond and owning that bond and having a coupon. You know why they called it a coupon, the interest rate that a bond pays? Because mm-hmm. you you actually took a little perforated part of the bond and you clipped that coupon off. You went to the bank and the bank paid you the interest. <laughs> See what you learn when you talk to like old farts like me who've been around a long time buying and selling stuff. But with a, like if I owned a Bitcoin or even a fraction of a Bitcoin, I can't print something out and take it to my bank and say, hey, ca- no. I want to cash this in. The only way to get actual money for it is to find somebody who will either take it as payment for something I want to buy, like a Tesla or. Uh, well, you can go on a Bitcoin. You could go like on a tr- an, exchange. an exchange. OK, you really can. And so that is like you remember the Winklevoss twins, like the guys from the Facebook, Facebook, the yeah. original guys, right? Yeah. So you can go to their platform. Um, and you can go to uh, Gemini. I think that's what it's called. Uh, and you go to Gemini.com and you can click on it and it says, hey, buy Bitcoin crypto instantly. OK, and you could do that. And they tell me this is what they're telling me. It is an I'm quoting from their website. It's a simple, elegant and secure platform to build your crypto portfolio. Mm-hmm. Buying, selling and storing your cryptocurrency has never been this seamless. Mm-hmm. There's more than one kind of cryptocurrency then, I guess, besides Bitcoin. Right. All right. There's more than one. um, Bitcoin being the the first and the largest, but there are others. But these exchanges actually have made it much easier because there's more security. And then you don't hear those. You know, you've heard, I'm sure, these terrible stories about people who forgot their um, Bitcoin passwords. And, you know, somewhere, somehow on someone's hard drive is Bitcoin worth, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars that they can't locate oh, because they don't know their password. There's no that, password recovery f- function. No password. Can... No, no. Uh, what was your elementary school? Which was your first car? You know, <laughs> oh, nothing no. like that. So I guess I don't need to feel too bad. Just finally, Jill, um, if I if I haven't invested in Bitcoin, I don't need to like call up my my investment advisor and be like, get me some Bitcoin in a mutual fund somewhere because we're not to that point yet. We're not to that point. And if you don't want, if I say, if I don't feel bad for not buying it at 13, you should not feel bad because there are a lot of ways to make money over the long term. Chances are this would like sort of a fun thing. You hear about a Bitcoin billionaire. That's all well and good. But most of us actually just need to put a little bit of money away every single month in our retirement accounts, save some money, invest in a diversified portfolio, use index funds. It really does work. It's kind of boring, but it's There's a beauty in that boredom. Jill Schlesinger, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It was great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Jill Schlesinger is a business analyst for CBS News, host of the nationally syndicated radio show and podcast and column, all of which are called Jill on Money. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. It's been great having you with us. Today's show was a selection of conversations from the Top of Mind archives which go all the way back to the start of our program in 2015. You can find all of it on the free BYU Radio app, by the way. And connect with us on social media to let us know what you think. We are at BYU Top of Mind on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll talk soon.